This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. What's up, y'all? It's your host, Will, coming back for a new episode of the Hunt Stand Podcast. On today's episode, we're going to be flipping the script on y'all just a touch. And what I mean by that is I'm going to be the guest today and I'm going to be talking about my most recent venture out to Nebraska, chasing after some whitetail with my bow. And we get Mr. Josh Dalkey on here to interview me. You know him already. He's been on the podcast a couple times, so you know the man, you know the voice. And so he's going to flip the script and he's going to interview me. I'm the guest. And so we're going to talk through the highs and lows that I went through, different things that happened, and talk about some unfortunate things that happened to a lot of bow hunters. And so, again, y'all, we just want to thank you for tuning into the Hunt Stand Podcast. We really appreciate the support. We couldn't do this without y'all. And if you want, and you want to hear something, you want me to talk about something, you want to ask me something, send me an email, podcast at huntstand.com. That way, make sure your voice is heard. If you haven't yet, make sure you download the HuntStand app today. We got the free version, and if you want to unlock all the features and tools, upgrade to Pro today. And again, y'all, we just want to thank you for your support and listening to the HuntStand podcast. And here we have myself and Josh Dalkey. Hello, everybody. It is Tuesday, September 27, and at this point, whitetail season has kicked off in most parts of the country, especially up here in the Midwest. We are rocking and rolling in Nebraska, Wisconsin, Minnesota. Iowa things are things are going really well right now um just everybody's excited to be out there some good bucks are going down and Will Cooper as he said uh the tables are turned a little bit on this episode I'm helping him host and dig into his brain a little bit about a recent hunt that he went on in northeastern Nebraska Mm -hmm. in a spot that we're both intimately familiar with Will whereabouts were you man we were just outside O'Neill, Nebraska. So we were right there on the South Dakota, Nebraska border. So both of us have been to this ranch. We hunted it together last year. Yep. Um, it was a really tough rut hunt. You had some good close encounters, almost sealed the deal. But I screwed up like a newbie. (laughs) 
yeah, ex- explain to people what what happened in that scenario. So kind of like Josh described, uh, you know, it was 2021. It was actually my first time to hunt out of state. And we had some deer that they were a little tough to figure out. And then me and the camera guy, Aaron, that I was with, we had finally kind of gotten in this spot that we felt like it was a pretty solid travel corridor. And we had made a mock scrape right behind us that we knew the deer were actually coming in in the middle of the night and hitting it because they'd come in and, you know, they would destroy it even more. Well, I think it was the second or third morning. Aaron and I were sitting there. It was probably about nine o'clock and we were kind of contemplating at that point, like, man, is this going to be an all day sit? What do we do? And I was like, man, I'm going to let out a couple quick grunts, do a quick rattle session and see if anything comes in. And I let out some grunts and I just happened to look behind me right at the scrape. And there's this 10 point just sitting there looking up straight at me. I think he was probably already at the scrape when I had made the grunt. And at that point I told the camera guy, it was a rookie move. I was like, man, I was like, dude, get the camera, start rolling. And I mean, I just moved like I had never been in a stand before. I mean, I went and grabbed my bow as quick as I could. And that buck just took off, stopped at 45 yards, too hard of a quarter. I was at full draw waiting for him to turn broadside. He never did. He just kept trotting out, trotting away out of my life and rookie mistakes. What do you do? Yeah. I mean, for being a rut hunt, that, that hunt was actually a lot more difficult than I thought it was going to be. Um, you kind of got into the main area where there were probably some hot does running around and smartly, I mean, you focused your time there and you guys, you guys sat that stand cause you just had pretty much nonstop action. And I think we were all imagining that it was just a matter of time before you got at a, got a shot at a deer that you wanted to take. And, yeah. uh, in the meantime, I was just kind of freelancing around trying to find <laughs> another spot like that, but <laughs> I never really did. You were in the, you were in the heart of it. And, but you uh, still killed. I still killed. Um, and actually full disclosure, I have rattled a little bit here and there deer hunting, but a lot of the places I've hunted throughout my life, I've just, I haven't had a lot of confidence in it. And I've, I've hunted more focused on like natural travel patterns and stuff like that. But this was my first hunt where I really had an opportunity to bang some antlers together. And it, it changed my season big time because it worked and it was like a huge light bulb for me. So because we were just freelancing around, we were doing a lot of ground sits and I think I rattled up like four different bucks on that hunt. And it was, it was super exciting to to be able to do that and actually have confidence that a deer could be coming. So once I rattled in the first one, I was like, man, this, this could actually work. And then I rattled in another and another. And then I think the fourth one, I rattled in was the deer I ended up shooting and yeah. uh, we were coming down to the wire and it was, we had set up a, a natural ground blind and we had got some trail camera uh, information from the night before. So we were confident in the spot and it was just, it was cool. The plan all came together in really short order within, mm-hmm. within two days of figuring out this pattern on this fence line, I was able to shoot that deer from the ground and it was, it was pretty cool, but, uh, I was able to take that rattling situation and apply it to a few other hunts. Um, I actually came back to Nebraska later in the season and did a, a rifle hunt during the rut. And I rattled up, um, actually a deer that I made a, a bad shot on with my rifle that, um, I ended up just, it was kind of a cosmetic flesh wound. I, I just kind of nicked his leg and I was all distraught over it because it was the first deer I'd wounded with a firearm and 
uh, luckily we reviewed the footage and clearly the deer was was going to live to hopefully see another season if, for sure another day because um, it was just a flesh wound but on that hunt i also rattled up a few other bucks including a a 160 class deer on the last morning it was i saw on that trip i saw the two biggest whitetails that i've personally seen on the hoof and uh they're magnificent and one of them was was genuinely a, a 200 class deer i mean if he wasn't 200 he was 185 or 190 Jeez. like um just a whole different creature and then the very last year that I ended up seeing on that trip was that 160 class that um, I just wasn't on my game. It was the last sit. I, I wasn't very confident. I was actually going to leave right before that. And my buddy convinced me to go try this one more spot late in the morning. And I kind of just went in there with without putting my full heart into it. Did an aggressive rattling sequence, sequence from a, a ladder stand. And within five minutes, this buck was just marching in. And I he caught me off guard saw me and, and busted out of there oh. but uh go let's let's rewind a little bit and talk about where you were in, in northeastern nebraska uh on the carson ranch and what it looks like what the terrain is like what the country is like what the kind of the the deer dynamics are i think it's pretty cool to paint the picture for people about where you were because people think in Nebraska a lot of the time. And I think they just think of what they're seeing off the main drag on the highway as you go through the state. And depending on what interstate you're on, um, you'll realize quickly that Nebraska in terms of the States I've been in is actually one of the most diverse, diverse places with the landscape from East to West, North to South. You got the sand Hills, you got the plains and prairie country mm -hmm. in the far West. It looks like you're in the black Hills of South Dakota or uh, even farther west in the mountains it feels like there's elk out there there's mountain lions but as you go to the eastern half of the state it's all whitetails and some upland birds and a lot of turkeys but just kind of give people an idea of what it looked like around that area on the carson ranch and like what was the what was the layout yeah so where we were i mean it wasn't far from uh river and you know when which, I, which river is that Gosh, you're. I think uh, it's the Niobrara. Yeah, the, the Niobrara, and lots of duck hunters out. There. I mean, lots of waterfowl out there. And I mean, last year in November there were duck hunters everywhere, but September there wasn't yet. And so when I think of Nebraska, I think of the Cornhuskers. So I think of nothing but flat cornfields. Which, in this this section where we were hunting, we had access to a total of about four thousand acres. But within that four thousand acres. A lot of it is farmland, but then within that, there's a mixture of these drainages and bottoms that, you know, kind of like you said a minute ago, when you get in there, you don't feel like you're in Nebraska. It's this, it's this real diverse country. And the crazy thing about where we were, these deer were making these transitions from cornfields that were still up. And I mean, this corn is probably eight foot tall at this point. So, I mean, these deer could just live in there and nobody can see them, right? And so, what we found out what these deer were doing, it was really hard to say what, where they were staying the most. The only thing we knew was that in the mornings and in the evenings, they were either transitioning to the corn from these drainages or they were coming out of the corn. So, we had deer that were doing both things. So, it was really hard to say 
the deer were bedded in the corn and they were going into the drainages for water or vice versa. Like it, they were just doing one or the other. And so the property, it, it was just a really diverse area and it looked a lot different than in November last year when we were there. Cause last year, November, everything was cut. So it was just like these cut dirt fields. Um, there might've been a little bit of beans left, uh, some dried up corn stalks on the ground, but this time, I mean, it was green, it was lush. There was corn everywhere. There was beans everywhere. And it was just, it was a way different scenario this year. Yeah. So I think a lot of people, um, from other parts of the country who have never really hunted deer in corn country or the Midwest. Um, you know, a lot of big deer, some of the, some of the nation's biggest deer come out of the Midwestern States. Yeah. But I think people just assume that it's a lot easier to hunt than if you're, if you're hunting big hardwoods or if you're hunting like down in the Southwest. Um, but it has its own challenges in the corn that you're talking about, especially for early season hunters. Or late season hunters, when the corn is still in the ground, the corn can present a serious challenge because yeah. it's its own ecosystem, essentially, mm-hmm. that those deer can can live in almost all day, every day, especially if the moisture level is high enough. I mean, they can get a lot of moisture just out of eating the corn, but a lot of times if there's been a bunch of rain, there'll be puddles or there'll be just really, really wet spots out in that corn that technically they really wouldn't even have to leave if they didn't didn't want to like they can hang out in there they can they can eat off the corn actually in pretty much all stages i've seen deer eating corn a lot of times people think that they only eat it when the stalks are or when the cobs are mature and they eat the actual cobs and the kernels but they'll eat the fresh shoots that are coming out of that corn and um they'll just they'll eat the leaves i've i've seen a lot of deer running around where they have big corn leaf or stalk Mm -hmm. coming out of their mouth so it's a jungle and you can't there's no way to hunt standing corn i know it's hard it's it's virtually impossible like some dudes every once in a while you'll hear about somebody like still hunting through corn and looking down the rows but like it's pretty pretty rare scenario and when you do hear about that or see that it's usually later in the season yeah when the corn is is already brown and it's not it's not like super it's not as dense anymore so you can actually see down the rows but like that's that's a pretty big long shot so one of the worst nightmare hunters for whitetail hunters in the midwest is if they're standing corn um yeah but as soon as that corn gets chopped or harvested and all you're left with is is cut fields or combine fields those deer have to transition back into the woods back into the Mm -hmm. timber their patterns become a lot more predictable They've got a, a good patternable food source with any waste grade that's on the ground. Um, but until then, you just better hope that you can catch them coming out of there during daylight is the key is the key on that. Like yeah. if they're coming out at night, it doesn't do you any good. And a lot of them do that. They'll they'll transition in and out of that corn. So see, and that 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 was a tricky part about our hunt because before we got there, they still had standing corn on a certain field where a lot of the target bucks were. And um, they, they, we had them patterned, you know, those deer were, there was some water inside the tree line that they were hitting every morning at seven, 7 AM, right at daybreak. And then sometimes you'd catch them coming out of the field, like right at last light going to the water. And so we had a pretty solid game plan, but two weeks before we went out there, they cut the corn. So then you essentially take away that ecosystem from those deer and those deer weren't doing that anymore. 
we didn't even know what they were doing at that point. And then also with the timing that you guys were out there. Um, so anybody listening who's unfamiliar with whitetail hunting in Nebraska, it's really cool because as a non-resident, you can actually shoot two bucks. Um, I believe that you have to switch your weapon. So you could shoot a deer with archery. You could shoot a deer with a uh, rifle or a deer with muzzle loader. I think you can have two deer, a, two bucks, a bonus tag. Um, yeah. So you could shoot one with archery, one with muzzle loader, or one with muzzle loader, one with rifle or one with rifle and one with archery. Um, but I, I'm pretty sure you can't just go shoot two with archery gear. You could, if you did it during the other season. So like you could hunt archery season and if you still want to use your bow and gun season, you can, but it has to be mixed between the the weapon type season, if that makes sense. Well, I know while we were there, uh, which we'll get to in a little bit, uh, you can per there's a there's a second tag that you can purchase to where you could still have the capability to shoot another deer, um, and it's I think it's what they call bonus tag because the ranch owner had asked me if I had one. Um, I well, think. I think that's just for antlerless, though. I think um, it, I think it is. It might just be for does. I'm I'm pretty sure it is. Yeah, with with bucks, I've hunted Nebraska a number of times, and uh, it's it's archery season, it's firearm season, it's muzzleloader season, and yeah. for bucks, you can shoot two, but they have to be in different seasons. So, okay. what I'm getting at is for the listeners who are unfamiliar with Nebraska. I just, maybe I shouldn't say this and, and let the cat out of the bag because it is a, a hidden gem to a certain degree, but deer hunting in Nebraska is awesome. You've got whitetails in the Western part of the state. You've got mule deer. If you hunt the Western part of the state or the sand hills, your, your tag is good for either species. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of opportunity there. And uh, what else is cool is that in terms of the Midwest, it's one of the earliest opening seasons and latest closing seasons. So you get a really long deer season in Nebraska from September 1st all the way into some extra antlerless seasons that go well into January. So you can hunt deer that are still in velvet and then you can hunt all the way through the rut into late season with muzzleloader if you want to continue archery. And then you can even knock down some extra meat with some of those later doe seasons. So it's it's a it's a really great opportunity for anybody who wants to get out there from September 1st well into January and do some deer hunting. Uh, I'm a huge advocate of the state. I've hunted there a bunch in almost every region of the state now. But this northeastern part, that was the first time I hunted there was with you last year. and Which we had a heck of a time. It, dude, it was, it was uh, every time I go into a hunt, especially a deer hunt, and I get cocky or I think that, Oh, we've got this thing in the bag. I, I get served up. I mean, that just happened <laughs> to me last weekend at my family's farm. I went in there like, oh yeah, we're going to get a shot at a deer. It was me and my brother. I was super confident and we got our asses kicked. I mean, so I either need to go in with a big serving, a humble pie every time. And then my odds go up or as my friends know, like while I'm on a hunt, usually I need to like hit rock bottom before I get my opportunity, when I think all hope is lost, that's usually when it happens. And uh, speaking of rock bottom, we're going to get to that with your hunt in terms of uh, the unfortunate series of events. But let's go through the play by play. Um, yeah. Kind of leading into the hunt, you know, working with Tyler Carson to get recon with trail cameras and just 
looking at hunt stand and and mapping out you know just how you were going to go about this hunt let's let's start from the beginning and, and just tell me what your strategy was yeah so moving into the hunt um you know we had obviously picked the time of year that we did because we figured that the bucks would be a little bit more patternable than during the rut like we did last year and so tyler went in and what he was able to do he actually went in and created on hunt areas he showed us where some new stands were he had gone in and put in some water in specific areas. And before we even stepped foot on the place, we felt like we had a solid game plan, kind of like how I spoke about earlier. We knew what some target bucks were doing coming in and out of the corn. They had a pretty specific pattern going on, so we felt really good going into it. But then two weeks before we got out there, um, the people who had actually leased the farming rights for this piece of land that we were on had actually gone in and cut the corn, so it had actually changed up the deer so when we first got out there you know tyler went and showed us around and the crazy thing is uh we actually had a really nice buck while we were driving around hop up out of the corn just sitting he was just sitting there gnawing on it and we just happened to drive by spooked him out of the corn and he ran across into one of the drainages that we ended up hunting but day one so hold on a second now that that buck that you guys saw another element that i think we should bring up here was he still in velvet or was he hard horned? He had, he pretty much had it stripped all off. Um, and this was August 31st and, or not. August, is there 34, 31 days in August? I'm sitting here trying to think. It was right the now. last day of last August. Last day of whatever, August. Whatever that is. Last 35th, day of August. 40th. I don't know. Yeah. The 40th day of August. And <laughs> he had most of his velvet stripped off. It was hanging. It was gnarly. It was pretty cool. Like his, his antlers were bloody and he was the the crazy thing was he was sitting right on this corner of a road where there was a small little wood lot. There was corn that was like seven, eight foot tall, and there was a water pivot that was going. So I mean it was just spraying water everywhere. So I think he had himself just a little honey hole hideout right there. He was just getting fat and happy on corn. He had water spraying on him. So I mean, where else would he want to go, right? I know the spot, man. I, we, I sat in there last year during our hunt, and uh, that was one of the spots where I actually grunted and, and rattled up a, an immature buck. It's a cool little tiny draw that leads down into a creek bottom. Yeah. Um, just a, a sweet spot. But with that whole velvet situation, you know, we talked about the, the status of the corn and the, the corn being cut and changing their patterns on some of the deer that you guys were hoping to go after. Mm-hmm. The other element of this that we haven't talked a ton about, which is certainly a factor, is that you know, it's cool to be able to hunt Nebraska during that September 1st archery opener. But one of the things that you're faced with is they are going through their transition where they're stripping velvet. And yeah. as most people know, that can really also alter their patterns, at least for a short window of time where they're kind of adjusting. Yeah. Um, after they've had that, that change in their hormones, they strip the velvet, the bucks start to split off. Sometimes, uh, depending on where you're at, they'll, they'll disperse into different areas. Bucks will ping pong from one spot to the other. You might, you might lose bucks that you're used to seeing. And then you pick up new bucks that move into the area from their summering grounds. Like there's this huge transition going on. And sometimes that can be beneficial, but a lot of times it can make it challenging because the patterns change. Uh, from what I've seen, a lot of times during that period, they also go a little bit more nocturnal. Mm-hmm. And so you guys were faced with that during that same time as, as some of the crop, the crops were being changed out. So, um, that's definitely, you know, a a different level of challenge that you had to face. Yeah. That, and then, 
I guess the other part that I hadn't brought up yet is, you know, where Tyler had this area where these bucks were patterned, it was this one small piece of property that the corn had been cut. But then there were neighboring pieces of property that butted up to property that we had access to that they had corn that was still growing and it was like six to eight feet tall at the time. And so it just created this, uh, it created this scenario to where you almost didn't know what to do, but that's where hunt stand honestly kind of came in clutch because we were able to go in and look at where there was still corn, where we had access that was close to this corn and we were able to try and map out certain areas where Tyler knew in the past where deer had bedded and knew where they were going in and out of the corn. So it kind of helped us develop a new game plan, if you will. So that's one of my favorite parts about doing that hunt with you last year and, and hunting the Carson Ranch and being able to do all that with, with Tyler and his family is uh, it's really a, a collaborative effort. It's a, it's a pretty unique situation because it's a it's a working cattle ranch yep. but they do some hunting but the way that they do it is it's it's sort of like uh semi-guided like it's not just a matter of um you know tyler saying go sit in the stand don't get down i'll come pick you up and it just you know I, i've been on hunts like that they're not they're not very fun um i mean and sometimes it's the only effective way to do it but yeah this place is so dynamic that if you're not mixing up your strategies and you're not collaborating and you're not just constantly adjusting, I think your odds go down significantly. So it's, it's cool that you're able to work hand in hand to build those strategies with somebody who's familiar with the ground and familiar with the deer, but then you're able to put your heads together, use stuff like hunt stand and try to just on the fly, readjust your strategy to give yourself a chance. Yeah. And you know, that's, that is the cool thing about that ranch too is, you know, it's not a, you're not on a guided hunt, really. It's Tyler kind of has the areas where they've been and he kind of get, he kind of just gives you free reign. Like that was, you know, I brought saddles with me last year because of scenarios we went through last year where, you know, we were in, yes, we were in this hot area, but we couldn't just move ladder stands in the middle of the day because of what these deer were doing. <coughs> these deer were, we, we had this one buck that had gone down the same path the same exact day or the same exact time last year, three days in a row. He'd come out at about 930, 100 yards away from our stand, going down this one path, and then he would be checking does, chasing does. And so last year, I wish I would have had a saddle. This year, I brought it with me. And so Tyler pretty much just gave us free reign where it's like, you know, on hunt stand, we knew where we had access and everything. And so I had the saddles to where we could get up in just about any tree and get on an area where we thought these deer may or may not have been traveling through. All right, y'all, we're going to interrupt this podcast real quick for a quick word from our sponsors. The Hunt Stand Podcast is brought to you by Bowtech Archery. Refuse to follow. If you're in the market for a new bow this fall, make sure you check out Bowtech and the easy tuning capabilities of the Deadlock system. I've been shooting the SR350 this year, and tuning that thing has been so easy. Don't have to worry about twisting strings or doing any of that rasin jazz. So if that's what you're looking for, make sure you check out Bowtech Archery today. Up next, we got Lacrosse Boots and their Navigator Series. The world is raw, rugged, and relentless. Navigate it accordingly. The Navigator Series is born to take your hunt further. Check out the comfortable and versatile line of lace-up hunting boots from Lacrosse today. Up next, we got Federal Premium. 
go beyond what you ever thought possible with their lineup of terminal ascent ammunition. I've been using this ammo this year so far and it has worked phenomenally for me. From Predators all the way up to a beautiful Hill Country, Texas Axis Buck, it worked amazingly. One shot, that buck didn't go anywhere, about 250 yards, that buck dropped right in his tracks. Literally didn't have to do any tracking. So if you're in the market for some new ammunition, check out Federal Premium and their lineup of Terminal Ascent. The Hunt Stand Podcast is also brought to you by Lacrosse's lineup of the Alpha Burley Pro Boot. Stock, hunt, repeat. Up next, we got Browning, the best there is. I'll be using their new lineup of Ovix gear this fall, so I'm really excited to check that out and just get to use it this fall all the way from the Whitetail Woods up in the mountains chasing elk. And finally, we got WorkSharp, the knife sharpening company. I use their MK2 knife sharpener on every knife in my house, in the kitchen, in my pack. It makes sharpening your knives a breeze. My wife even loves to use this thing. It makes everything super easy. So if that's what you're looking for, make sure you check out WorkSharp today. All right, Joe, we're going to get back to this episode of the Hunt Stand Podcast. So let's let's talk about another element of uh, challenge for this hunt. And it's something that I realized last year. Uh, I visited the ranch preseason. And then, of course, we hunted it during the rut. And now you've gone there. You've hunted it early season. Yep. Um, one of the things about this area is the deer density is not super high um so there are enough deer around certainly to hunt yeah and with that i mean there are some some serious giant mature bucks out there um and it's it's pretty desolate country overall i mean there is hunting pressure from people in the area especially during firearm season and yeah you know there's a lot of like big groups of people that hunt gun season so deer get shot but what i'm getting at is there's not a very high population density so um one of the reasons that is is because i believe it was what i don't know five six years ago or something like that um this is an area that's affected by ehd epizoatic hemorrhagic disease this nasty mm-hmm. little midge that comes out of the dirt it bites a deer in the ear and then usually within 48 hours they die it's a it's a tragic thing but there's absolutely no way to control it. It's just kind of one of nature's ways of uh, reducing deer populations, I guess. Um, there's there's no biological way to control that. And when it hits, it hits hard and it devastates. In a lot of cases, it devastates whitetail populations where it takes them years to recover, especially to get back that age structure and those older age class bucks. Because ultimately, a lot of the deer that go down from EHD are the older age class bucks and tyler lost what was it three four years ago or something or whenever that outbreak was he lost a 200 class buck that he was going to put a hunter on and 2012 okay so it's 10 years ago it hit him hard real hard like they had a really booming whitetail population before that and they've they've still been trying to recover ever since which Um, which they're starting to see Tyler and I were talking about this while we were there, you know, 2012, they got hit super hard and they're just now starting to see things getting back to somewhat of a, of a normal level. Like the deer numbers are starting to really pick up. They're getting obscene numbers of, of does are really starting to show up. The bucks are finally starting to get some size back to them because Tyler and I were talking 2012, it 
I mean, it was like an everyday normal occurrence to see a 150, 160 out there. Like that was a normal thing. And they found a 200 and I think it's four, a 204 they found dead. And that's when EHD really hit. And you should maybe at some point have Tyler on the podcast um, just because. If I could get super, him on here. Yeah. he Tyler works in the, the cattle industry. So he's a between working on the the ranch at the family place and then his full-time job, he's a, he's a busy dude and yeah. uh, doing this hunting stuff during the fall. Mm-hmm. And he's also an avid upland bird hunter. He's a great up. He kills big time all the, yeah. Sharp tails, uh, prairie chickens, pheasants, um, super good wing shooter. But, uh, I remember that story of that deer and it was such a bummer because he actually had this hunter coming in from out of state who was going to come and hunt that deer and Tyler had a real good pattern on him, And he literally went in to go check a trail camera one day and he came around the corner and he saw these antlers and he's like, Oh my gosh, I'm walking up on this deer right now. And he was walking up on the deer, but then what he realized was that this 200 class whitetail was laying there dead. It had just gone down within like 24 hours or 48 hours of, of when he had last gotten pictures of him from that EHD. It's just, it just takes them out. And, um, you know, nine times out of 10, they die by water. So you'll see all these mm-hmm. dead deer carcasses by water source. It's cause you know, they're hurting, uh, their body tells them, Hey, go drink water. And then, so you end up seeing them by ponds and rivers and creeks. Um, when EHD comes through, it's just a, it's a pretty grotesque sight in yeah. some places. Um, I've so seen- yeah, that, is rough. I've seen it hit pretty hard in South Texas. I I actually watched a really beautiful 12 point last year in South Texas on a ranch that I helped out on a little bit. And there was this 12 point that he had a drop tide on him and he was hitting water every day and he just kept getting skinnier and skinnier and skinnier. And you're hoping that he's going to pull out of it. But uh, a few days later after uh, we had left for, from that hunt, the, the ranch manager sent me a picture of a, of that deer dead right by water. I hope I'm getting all my facts right about EHD here, everything that I've said. Uh, we'll have to have Brian Murphy, a hunt stand wildlife biologist on here sometime, maybe just to talk specifically about some of the deer diseases. But mm-hmm. what I know about EHD is it's 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 even much more violent than, than CWD, which is also a huge issue. Yeah. Um, but what's interesting is I don't believe any CWD has shown up in Tyler's part of the country yet. Whereas here where I'm at in Minnesota, not too far away, um, just eight hours away to the East, you know, CWD is a much more bigger, a much bigger issue here. In fact, it's very rare that we ever hear about deer in Minnesota getting EHD. I don't know if it's the, if it's the climate or what it is that keeps them more under control, but thankfully we don't really get EHD, but anyways, getting back to your hunt. Um, we're, we're identifying all these challenges, the crops changing, the, the velvet stripping, yep. these yep. recovering from EHD, low population density. So you go into this hunt, you're there the first day, you guys are going to scout in the evening, um, the day before season opener, you jump this big buck out of this draw. Uh, what, where do things go from there? So we, what we decided to do and kind of in the back of my head, I was like, man, I have a feeling we're going to be hunting this area. I, I do. And, uh, what we went ahead and did the first, uh, day we kind of stuck to the original game plan. You know, what Tyler had noticed before the corn was cut that these deer were kind of 
taking rotations in like three to four days of where they'd they'd come to this water, they'd come in front of the camera. But then once the corn got cut, we noticed that those deer were taking like six days, eight days before they'd come back by that same camera. And so we kind of looked at the timeline. We looked at the calendar like, well, you know, if they're going to follow that same timeline, they're going to come by this camera here pretty quick. So we thought let's, we're going to sit, we're going to sit in the A plan on day one, morning and evening. We're going to see if these bucks happen to come by. Nada. So we decided to go to kind of the game plan B where Tyler had a hay bale blind set up where these deer had a natural travel corridor that they were kind of taking. It was kind of like a year round travel corridor. There were deer always going through here. And so we thought we're going to go sit, sit there. We're going to see what happens in the morning. And we had some does come by small buck. Um, so we thought, you know what, um, what we had ended up doing the past two evenings, we had driven by the field where that buck had been spooked out of. And he was out there both evenings in addition with some other deer. So we knew that right at last light, those deer were there. So what we decided to do one day during lunch, we went and dropped some cameras down in this drainage, got in quiet, got out. And we thought, let's see if we can figure out what finger or what part of this drainage that these deer were coming out of. And we can maybe go in and set up in a saddle. Well, we went and sat up in a saddle that evening where we thought was a pretty good travel corridor and no deer, nada. We got in there kind of real early because we knew we were going to be making just a little bit of noise, getting those saddles set up, nothing. So right before we ran out of light, probably about 15 minutes of light left, I told the camera guy, I was like, man, I said, I, I want to get down and I want to check this field. I'm still in recon mode. I'm trying to gather information and figure out what these deer are doing. I said, let's go check the field, you know, let's just go check. So we get down, check the field, nothing. So we still had some light left. And I said, dude, I was like, let's book it. Let's get to the Omaha. We're going to go check the backside of this drainage and see if they came up another finger from the road. You know, we can glass them. These deer are used to people driving up and down these roads, you know, then that way it's like, okay, we get, we can get a better game plan together. We know potentially where these deer are coming out at last light and we can get set up on them tomorrow. And right as we start booking it, we're sticking right to the tree edge. I look off to my right. We're maybe 100 yards from the Yamaha, and there's the buck that we had spooked up before opening day, just staring at us. And so I tell camera guy, I'm like, dude, drop, get down. We both get down. Wind is perfect in our face. This buck doesn't know what we are. You know, we were able to get hunkered down. The grass is probably two feet tall. So, I mean, I was able to get down just low enough to where he couldn't figure out what we were. Well, since he didn't know what we were, wind was in our face. This buck starts walking right at us. And I couldn't believe it that this buck's running at us. I mean, Texas, if that was to happen to me and a buck saw us do that, that buck would have been gone by now. Like he would have known danger. So this buck starts coming to us and at this point, I had taken off my bino harness and everything because I was thinking that I was going to have to try and stalk a little bit closer to this deer in this grass, and I was about to start taking off my shoes. And luckily, I had Burst's Oracle 2 on my bow, so I didn't have to worry about a rangefinder. And so this buck just starts keeping at us, keeping at us. And then he kind of starts, he turns perfectly uh, broadside to us. And I was waiting for the opportune time. Like at this point, he's maybe at 30 yards. Well, then he turns his head away from us. I draw back and I ask camera guy, like, dude, you on him? And he's on him. 
and I range him with the burrs and he's at 28, 28, 28. And this is a chip shop. I mean, this, this is a shot that I, I shoot every day with my bow. I'm shooting 20 to 30 yards. It's something that I'm always making sure I'm doing and totally comfortable. This deer finally pretty much comes to almost a stop, has that front leg forward and I let it rip. I had a good release, good pull. We watched the Luminoc go hit. We, you hear that thwack, you know, solid body shot. We're like, all right, awesome. And I watched him take off running and he had that sideways run to him. And at any moment, it's just like, he's going to go down. He's going to go down. Felt like a good shot, clean break. And then he disappeared into the drainage. Well, I told Sam, I said, man, I said, we need to find that arrow. Um, we need to find that first and foremost. I need to find blood before we do anything. So I marked where I was standing when I shot. And then we went and Sam, cameraman stayed back and we went right where that buck was standing. And I marked it. So I knew I had some good, good relevant distance, knew where he was. So I marked it on hunt stand and no arrow, no arrow, no blood. So I said, all right, we're going to go back to camp. We're going to go meet up with Tyler. We're going to get with his dad. We're going to eat some dinner and figure out what we're going to do. So dinner time, we gave it about two, two and a half hours and we go down and we decide, all right, let's go back. Let's try and find some blood. Let's find the arrow. Well, we find the arrow, no blood. And the arrow tells a completely different story from what the camera told us. We had gone and looked at the camera. We had blown the shot up on a bigger screen. We felt good about the shot. It looked clean, looked, looked good. We felt good. But then when we get there, the arrow tells us a completely different story. Uh, basically once we found the arrow, we had about six to eight inches of penetration. We had about that much blood on my arrow. Broadhead was destroyed and there were, the blades weren't left on it. And at this point we thought, all right, we're going to look for a little bit of blood. Everybody kind of got turned around at night and we decided to back out and I didn't sleep a wink. And this is the first time that this has ever happened to me. I've, never wounded a deer. I've never had to wait overnight for a deer that I've shot. It's never, never happened to me. Um, being in the industry, as long as I have, I've been a part of hunts like this. I have filmed hunts like this. And so I knew immediately I've seen this before. I've seen this happen. We're going to back out. We're going to wait till morning. We're going to, this deer may not be dead yet. I, we still, at this point, we're not sure like where shot placement is. We don't know what happened. And so we just decided to pull out back out till the morning and toughest thing of my life. Worst night of sleep ever. So give me, give me your honest assessment of what, when you guys went back, you know, reviewed the footage, found the arrow, found, found what had happened to the broadhead. Like, what were you telling yourself at this point in, in terms of the shot and what, what was your assessment? What what did you think had actually happened? So when you watch the when you watch the footage and we slowed it down, the shot looked like it was right behind that shoulder crease. I mean, because you watched the luminoc go in just the perfect spot, and then you watch as that deer drops. The crazy thing was like we knew when when we had impact because you're watching that luminoc and then it just stops. It stops with that forward trajectory. And then you see, as soon as the deer drops, that Luminoc drops with it. So we knew, okay, 
we've got good shot placement, we felt, from the footage. But then when that deer turned, you we knew that we didn't have great penetration. So that's where the confusion starts for us, right? We're like, okay, looks like we've got great shot placement, but not great penetration. So it's like, what what hit? Where did it hit? And what big bone or what, you know, what happened? And then, but we still felt like we had good shot placement. Like, okay, shot placement was good. That arrow got, you know, some good, decent penetration. We didn't get a full pass through. So we're thinking to ourselves, okay, he had, that broadhead had to rattle around and cut up a lot. But then when we found the broadhead, when I found that and kind of confirmed, like we didn't get the penetration and the broadhead was destroyed working in a shop, a bow shop, as long as I had, as I had before. And just being in the industry, the first thing that goes through my mind is we got to back out. We got to leave this deer. He could be within that tree line, bedded down. You know, if we don't find blood within a few yards, let's get out. And it's, it's just, it's just not a good feeling. It's not a good gut feeling. You're just not, it's not, it's not fun is the best way to put it. Um, it's the worst thing a bow hunter I think can go through having to back out like that and try to sleep. It's, 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 uh, yeah, it's heart wrenching. It's just, it is, it is the worst thing. It's, it's the worst thing you probably ever have to go through in hunting and being a hunter. And I can tell you, I, I can vividly recall all my instances. Luckily it's not a ton of them, but I started deer hunting when I was 12 years old. Mm-hmm. So not to go over my age, but I'm 37 now. And I can tell you that I've wounded precisely three deer with archery equipment and one deer with a firearm. And um, I, every one of those scenarios, I can, I can play back for you just like it was yesterday. Yeah. And uh, man, it's just, it's, the reality is no matter what you're shooting a deer with um, the dynamics of, of what goes into that, you could shoot the same deer the same way every single time with the same equipment. And I can almost guarantee you that you're going to have a little bit different result every time. Because when you talk about where the, where the rubber meets the road or where the broadhead meets the deer, where the bullet meets the deer um, shooting at a live animal, versus even just an anatomically correct target it's an entirely different thing Mm -hmm. if that deer moves an inch or a half inch it can drastically change what's happening when you make contact especially with archery equipment whether it's a traditional bow a compound Mm -hmm. bow or even a crossbow um you know there's a lot there's there's a lot that happens whenever you whenever you squeeze off that trigger for a bow on that release like there you're not necessarily traveling as fast as a, a bullet. And so there's a lot that happens between zero to 30 yards in that second or two that it takes for that arrow to get to him. Yeah. It's a people, I think underestimate how, how dynamic that situation is. So, I mean, clearly the only, the only explanation now is that, you hit bone. Um, you hit either a femur or you hit mm-hmm. the scapula. Um, 
some type of really, really hard bone. And I, I we can go over more of this. And I think it'd be great to have another podcast episode specifically uh, about the situation. Maybe have some people on who've had to go through this, dissect some shot scenarios, some common issues. But yeah. in a nutshell with yours, I think it's very important to get across to people that it doesn't matter what setup you're shooting. I know people really like to say, well, I've got this, I've got this archery setup that I it's going to blast through anything. I shoot this broadhead or I'm shooting a 600 grain arrow. Yeah. I mean, the weight of your setup, the fixed blade versus mechanical, et cetera. I mean, look at, look at the real results of people doing testing and stuff. And there's not, there's no such, there's no magic setup. So if you square off on a hard bone on a deer with a mm-hmm. with some blades that are on the end of an arrow that really isn't going that fast, um, it probably ain't going to work out in your favor. So, well, that, yeah, were, yeah, I was I was shooting nearly a five hundred grain arrow. It's like it hit something hard, or I had a deflection that caused it to hit something hard. Like I just, it's beyond me, man. Yeah, and you can you can kill yourself trying to trying to go over that scenario over and over again. And I think it's a healthy part of the process. Like you, you do owe it to the deer, you owe it to the hunt, you owe it to yourself as a bow hunter to really analyze and try to figure out like, could I have done anything differently? A lot of times the answer is no. Mm-hmm. I mean, for, for the situation you were faced with, you probably made a great shot, but even if that deer moved or even if his leg moved a little bit um, with that pocket that we talk about, all it takes is for that deer to move its leg. Um, yeah. I think a lot of people, I think, envision the anatomy of a deer and they just assume that the shoulder is straight up from the the lower part of the leg and when you go into the deer's body, but there's that curve there and that's where that pocket is. But mm-hmm. depending on how the leg is oriented, you know, that deer can actually cover that pocket. So who knows what happened with your specific shot or how that deer reacted or moved when, when the arrow was in flight or when that release went off. But odds are if looking at the video, I've seen it. It looks like you, you made the perfect shot, but it's bow hunting. And in that split second or those split seconds between when you squeeze the trigger mm-hmm. or let that release go and that arrow gets there, man, things, things can happen. So yeah, that's, I've, I've put so many different scenarios in my head. Like I can't tell you the countless amount of situations that I think happened between the time that I, that I broke that shot off and between when that broadhead first met wherever it did on him. It, I could sit here and talk about all the different things. Like did his, his front arm come back or his front leg come back and that elbow come back just enough. Did it, did it go too high left and it hit that, that backside shoulder blade? Did I hit the sternum? Did I do this? Did I do that? Did I have a broadhead failure? Did that broadhead hit rib and deflect and hit that backside shoulder? And he was able to kick it out. I mean, I don't know. I, I, I can honestly tell you, I don't know what happened. I'm not going to blame it on broadhead failure. I don't know what happened. Um, and I mean, what I can tell you is we went back the next morning and we looked and we looked in that drainage. Then we got permission to go on the neighbors and look. And then we got permission on another neighbors and went and looked. And we looked for crows. We listened for coyotes. We checked fields for the next three days to see if he was still alive and he was going to come down the same travel route. I mean, 
we tried everything possible. I mean, heck, Tyler and his dad went and got on horses two days later and checked a neighboring property that we had that they had permission on to where they could maybe get a little bit higher to have a little bit better advantage to look through some of the scrub brush. Um, and they still haven't seen any any buzzards or anything yet. And um, the hardest thing about it is just not knowing what happened, what happened to that deer. And, you know, when, whenever I have a failure, typically there's a lesson that is to be learned, right? Like there's always something to be learned. And out of this, that's the hardest part because I don't know what went wrong. I don't know, like, did I make a bad shot? Did this happen? Did that happen? Did this happen? Did that happen? But the only thing that I knew that we did right was that we did about as much justice as we could for that animal searching as hard as we could. I mean, searching for 72 hours, listening, looking, and doing what we could to try and find that deer. Is he still alive? He might be. I mean, the crazy thing is I watched, um, I think it was Bowhunter Die shared this recently on their Instagram where a guy double-lunged a deer. I don't know if you saw this. Double-lunged a deer with a mechanical broadhead, and that deer still survived. Like, it was the perfect shot. You couldn't have asked for a better shot. And that deer survived with both lungs getting shot. Um, I mean, now, granted, that deer got shot later during rifle season by a rifle hunter. Um, but still, these whitetail are resilient tough animals yeah i think i think to sort of wrap this up the key takeaways are do everything in your power to set yourself up for the best possible scenario and best possible shot that you can as a bow hunter but um leading up to the to the hunt and leading up to the shot um is equally important as what you do after that arrow flies and You guys on paper did everything correct. You gave the deer time. You didn't rush things on the blood trail. You reviewed the footage, thankfully, because you had a camera rolling, so it gave you a little bit better idea. And you know that yeah. is a, that is an advantage of running the camera. Um, you searched through hell and high water to try to find that deer, and uh, you, you thought about what you could have done differently and all that. Like you, you went through the correct process after the shot and mm-hmm. ultimately i in my opinion if you were put in that same scenario again i don't think you would have done anything differently i don't think you should have done anything differently it's just bow hunting is awesome and bow hunting sucks because like we've talked about as soon as you let that arrow fly mm-hmm. there's a whole lot of responsibility in that in that quick little burst of time and um it, it falls out of your hands because it's, it's just such a dynamic environment with, with a live animal versus shooting targets. So it does. And you know, like you, I've been hunting since I was seven years old and I'm about to be 31 and I've been bow hunting over half my life now. And, you know, I have been pretty lucky when it's come to bow hunting. I, you know, I've, I've had misses, some super clean misses, just, bad pin selection or uh not dialing my pin down right to where it needed to be and i've missed deer i've had it happen uh but in the back of my mind you know working in the industry as long as i have being a part of hunts of guys that have wounded deer tracking deer till midnight or 
you know, being a part of stuff like that in the back of my mind, I would always think to myself, God, I hope this never happens to me. And so that's why I practice religiously. I shoot as much as I can. I work on my own bows because I've managed archery shops. And so I make sure my bows doped in it's everything's doing what it's supposed to. And in the back of my mind, I just always thought, God, I hope that never happens to me. But I knew one day it eventually could happen. And unfortunately, every bow hunter's worst nightmare is wounding a deer, not finding it. And unfortunately, that happened to me while I had a camera with me. And that's the thing that sucked about it. I mean, not not just losing a deer, like losing the deer, not finding it. That's the worst part. It sucks. Uh, I hate it. Uh, but just the fact that I had a camera with me just kind of threw some salt into the wound too, you know? Yeah, for sure. And, and speaking of having a camera with you, um, for everybody who's listening right now, um, possibly to Will's dismay, uh, he's obliged to share this experience with everybody in a new HuntStand original film called The Inevitable. It's live right now on HuntStand.com and our YouTube channel. Check it out. Commiserate with them. Take what you can. It's a great film. It's a great story. Really cool encounter with that deer, and definitely some lessons to be learned for everybody. So, in the in the spirit of how you usually close this thing off, is there any last words of wisdom that you want to share with everybody who's listening? Not maybe not necessarily wisdom, because I think I shared just about as much as I could. That you gotta you know you gotta do the animal respect and do everything you can to try and make sure you find that animal if it is dead. But I would say to all the people that once you see this on that film, I would love to hear everybody's opinion to what they think happened. And I know there's going to be some haters on there going to say, oh, you should have done this. You should have done that. You know, blah, blah, blah. You know, I'm going to get that. That's part of being in the industry. I mean, it is what it is. But I would love to I'd like to hear from other people out there, you know, what they think happened. And, you know, they can do that by, you know, either emailing us here, podcastonstand.com or comment on the video itself. I'd love to hear it. Definitely, man. Yeah, please go check out the film. Once again, it's called The Inevitable, HuntStand.com or the HuntStand YouTube channel. Leave your comments. Let everybody know what you think. And uh, hopefully everybody can take away something from this and and uh, apply it as a bow hunter. So yeah. thanks for listening to the HuntStand podcast. And I'll let Will close it out. All right, so there you have it. And in the podcast, you know, if you haven't had what I had happen to me, losing your first buck or first deer, doesn't matter, first animal, whatever it is with a bow, man, it don't get too arrogant, don't get too cocky thinking it'll never happen to you because if you're a bow hunter long enough and you've shot a bow long enough, unfortunately it happens to a lot of us unless you've got a super perfect record and you're Levi Morgan or, or some crazy shot. But uh, if you're a bow hunter, more than likely, this has either happened to you or it may happen to you one day. Um, And for those of you that has happened to, I now understand the feeling. I've kind of seen it before whenever it's happened to people and thought I felt it, but I definitely understand the feeling now. And those, if you haven't felt it yet, then uh, keep doing your best and make sure that it never happens to you. We just want to thank you all for tuning in to the Podcast. Really appreciate the support, and we'll see you on the next one. 